This morning, I wonder if you have encountered any, any problems recently in your life. A crisis, a difficulty. Some may be more menial things like uh, the uh, hot water heater went out and uh, you no longer have a hot shower. Um, you know, it's a basic thing in life. Um, the Klingtoks are going through that challenge right now. It's not a big deal, um, but it's a little discomfort. Uh, but some of us might have deeper problems than a water heater going out. Uh, how do you think about solving problems? When you think about what a problem that you encounter, you think about figuring out, first of all, the, the, the real problem so that you can actually address the, the solution in a right way. You can't fix something if you don't figure out, first of all, what is the real problem going on. The symptoms are often not the problem. The symptoms are often not the problem. Oftentimes, the problem lies beneath the symptoms. So in order to figure out a solution, you've got to figure out the problem. I'll give you another example. In this building, we have a very old AC system. And when we have an AC problem, we have learned, before we do anything else, to call Carl. Because he knows so much about our AC system that he can tell us if it's a problem that he can fix or it's a, it's a problem that we call, need to call someone to take care of it. In the past, we would call someone to take care of it, and they knew less than Carl knew about our AC system. You want to figure out what the real issue is before you think about a plan how to fix it. And that's a principle that's good in anything you do, whether it's fixing your car or trying to figure out how to fix a financial problem or trying to fix a relational problem. Friends, the principle lies true in anything in our lives, especially in our spiritual lives. Before you get to the solution, you must figure out the real problem. I want us to consider this principle in our spiritual lives as we continue our series in Isaiah, the real problem and the real solution. Would you open God's Word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 59? We're reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter, verse 20 to verse 21. Isaiah, chapter 59. If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. Uh, we would even encourage you to take it home and have the Bible with you so you can read it. We'd love for you to have it. Um, and if you have any questions about God's Word, we would love to talk to you about any questions you might have about God's Word. But this morning, here is God's Word for our hearts. God says to His people, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. 
They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats your eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light. But behold, darkness. And for brightness. But we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there's none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. 
for our hearts. Would you bow, bow down your head in prayer with me, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts as we hear. Let's pray. Father, you reveal yourself in your word to us. As we hear the proclamation of your word, would you speak to our hearts in a way that our hearts would respond to you, would embrace uh, your word, would embrace the offer of your salvation. Father, we pray that our hearts would have the courage to look deep inside and see the sin that, that dwells in us. Help us, O oh Lord, to hear from you. Give us the courage, give us the brokenness to hear in a way that leads our hearts to respond humbly before you. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor, and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. The real problem and the real solution. You can't get to the real solution until you figure out the real problem. Well, in the book of Isaiah, since chapter 56, God has been promising his people that he will restore them, that he will bring about a restored community. If you remember, however, in chapter 56, a problem started to arise, that God's people were tempted and were in danger to be led by poor spiritual leaders, by poor spiritual leadership. And as we have seen in chapter 56, poor spiritual leadership has devastating effects upon a community. Because when the leadership is silent about spiritual dangers, it is easy for God's people to slowly drift away from God's word and not be confronted with the need to repent of their sin and realign their lives with God's word. But poor spiritual leadership is not only the problem, the cause of poor spiritual conditions in the church, poor spiritual leadership is also indicative of the church's poor spiritual condition. Because ultimately, God's people are responsible for their spiritual leaders. Well, chapter 57 and 58 uh, have exposed for us how the sin of God's people has, has grown among them. And chapter 59 continues this expose, this display, this exposure of the sin of God's people. It's as if in these three chapters, chapter 57, 58, and now 59, the red thread that is being communicated through these three chapters is about confronting God's people with their sin and with specific ways in which they rebelled against God. But unlike previous chapters, in chapter 59, this chapter reveals for the first time, in the entire book, that God's correction, that God's confrontation of sin begins bearing the fruit of turning around, of acknowledging, of repenting. For the first time, since chapter 1 of Isaiah, God has been confronting his people with their sin. And now we see a corporate, a corporate turning that God's people are starting to get it. So this morning, as we are 
looking at the real problem and at the real solution for God's people, I'd like for us to see three steps that this passage is, is building for us as we get from the real problem to the real solution. Three steps of this journey. Courage to expose the real problem. That will be step one. Step two, brokenness to confess the real problem. Step two. Third, the mercy of God to initiate salvation. That's step three. We might, we might summarize these steps from the real problem to the real solution in, in, these, in these three words. Sin, repentance, salvation. This is the path from figuring out the real problem, the real problem to getting to the real solution. So let's look at each of these steps and see how, how this chapter helps God's people take this journey from figuring out what is the real problem in my life and find the real solution. Courage to expose the real problem. This is point number one. The real problem we see in verses 1 through 8 is the problem of sin. I love how one interpreter, one Bible commentator said, repentance does not come easily to any of us. Would you agree with that statement? Repentance does not come easily to any of us. And it is hardest of all for people who have become accustomed to using religion as a cover for their sins. When their prayers go unanswered, they find it easier to blame God than to take a long, hard look at themselves. Friends, this is exactly what's going on at the beginning of this chapter. Look at verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Have you noticed how easy it is for any of us when we go through a significant uh, letdown in our lives to think somehow that God is letting us down, that God is not listening, that God is removing himself from us or that he is not caring for us? We may wonder why is God not hearing our prayers or why is he not responding? And it is easy for our hearts to begin a quiet resentment against God. You might take this resentment lightly. Well, I, I, have, a, I, have, a, I have something with the Lord I'm just not pleased with. And then you might think of, of somehow thinking that you can, you're displeased with the Lord and you're in the right and the Lord is in the wrong. Earlier in chapter 58, we saw this attitude among the people of, uh, of Israel. In, I, in chapter 58, verse 3, they said, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? How easy it is for any of us, dear friends, to blame God when he seems not to answer things our own way. Have you ever fallen in that trap? Or do you find in your heart that tendency to go that direction? This accusation that people had in Isaiah's time um, was, was somehow accusing God that he is not able to help or that he is not able to hear their prayers. 
Isaiah wants his people to know that if God seems distant toward them, it's not God's fault. It's their fault. The fault lies not with God, but with them. The reason why God's face is hidden from them is because of their sin. If God seems not to answer, it's not because his ear is dull. It's not because somehow his arm is not able to provide or to, to, to deal with our crises. It's because perhaps sin has blocked our communion with God. But I wonder if you realize that sin is like a clog in the pipeline of our relationship with God. Sin can hide God's face from us so that God does not hear our prayers. But it's not His problem. It is our problem. Have you heard the phrase, God hates the sin but loves the sinner? It's not entirely true. True. I think we would be better off if we discarded that phrase. In this text, God turns away his face from the sinner. Not just from his sin, from the sinner, from his prayers, from his pleas to God. He's not going to continue to listen to those who continue to live in continual rebellion against him. We have this problem with our kids. When they would ask us to do something and do some things in, in certain ways that they want us to act or respond, we might tell them, well, if you are not listening to us, we cannot listen to you. God is, is not listening to the prayers of His people because His people have turned their ears away from God. Now, some may object, well, aren't we all sinners? We all are. It's true. All people are sinners. But Christians are a subset of sinners. Christians are, are sinners who have turned their back to sin. And even though we continue to be tempted by sin, and even though we continue to fall back into certain sins, we, we want to acknowledge it, we want to confess it, and we want to turn back to the Lord. We are not just sinners Christians are repenting sinners. And here in Isaiah, the prophet wants to tell God's people that if they continue to live life, not turning back to the Lord, continuing intentionally in their sin, thinking that their relationship with God is okay and it's not affected by their sin, if they think that they can ignore their sin and yet be okay with the living God, they're misguided. Sin clogs up the pipeline of our relationship with God. And if they feel that God is far from them or that God is ignoring them, it's because sin has brought about that effect. And in their lives, they may rightly feel far from God because they're not dealing with a sin that is clogging up their lives. As Isaiah exposes the real problem, he continues by showing the specifics of their real problem. In other words, it's not only that Isaiah says, you have, a, you have a real problem. He also goes on to say, your problem is very real. Like very specific. So 
in verses 3 to 8, Isaiah confronts and brings a list of sins, so specific sins. Look at verse 3. Isaiah exposes their violence. And then he, disp- he exposes their dishonesty. Even their justice system, uh, when they, uh, they try to appeal to their justice system, they, uh, they appealed to it with false reports. Their empty pleas were dishonest pleas. Because verse 3 and 4, For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, or no one enters or appeals to the law justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Now, some of us might say, well, I, I've never killed anyone. I'm a good person. Well, notice how here, actually, uh, Isaiah exposes more the sins, of, the sins of the tongue, not just the sins of, of the doing of evil. But it's not only evil actions and dishonest speech. He goes on to re- tell them that the problem is deeper than mere outward actions. Their thoughts were the place where they devise wickedness. Look at verse 7. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. In other words, they're not simply happening to fall into sin. They had conceived sin in their thoughts, and they ran to evil, and they're swift to carry it out. Friends, sin is never just a matter of outward behavior. It's rooted in our minds as well. That's why when we fight against sin, when we think about turning back to the Lord, we're not just fighting against an outward behavior, but also we want to fight against the sin pattern that happens in our own minds as well. Let me give you an example. If, If someone is looking at pornography, it's not just about the act of looking at pornography, but also about what is happening in the mind and in our thoughts before and after. Sin is never just a matter of, of our actions. It also involves our thoughts and our minds. Let me give you another example. If, if someone is struggling with anger, quickly bursts of anger come out of a person. It's not just about what happens in that moment when, when someone loses it. It's about what happens in the mind. What's going on in the mind that, that, the, that the mind is starting to trigger in, and lead into actions? We don't just deal with the outward behavior. We also deal with the mind and with the heart as well. Today, quite a few people are willing to accept that they are sinners. If we were to take a poll today and see how many of you, how many of us this morning would accept and acknowledge that we are sinners? I would expect that quite a few of us, most of us, would have no problem to acknowledge that we are sinners. But we are unwilling to hear specific accusations of our sins. There are many today, even in church, that are willing to acknowledge our status as sinners. But let's just leave it there. Let's just keep it general. Let's just put this cloak of, all right, we get it, we're sinners. But we get very uncomfortable and very quickly 
and aggravated and perhaps even upset when specific sins are pointed out. Sometimes even in our prayers, dear friends, we may ask God to forgive our sins. And we just throw this general confession. But how often do you take time to actually say what particular sins you are confessing? That's why a few weeks ago we began introducing intentionally and regularly a prayer of confession in our morning service. One of the instructions we have given to those who lead us in a time of confession is to think about some specifics as well. Because we want to be reminded not just about sin in general, but about specific ways in which our hearts, our minds, our actions can actually fall into sin. Isaiah has the courage to expose to his people the real problem, the problem of sin, and he doesn't just stay there in a general way, but he gets specific. He, he tells them how real their problem is. And that last part of describing their sin in verse tw- uh, 7 and 8, Isaiah describes and says, Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Here, the picture of a highway or paths or roads are not referring to physical highways. They didn't have highways back then. Rest assured, there is not talking about physical highways. It's not even talking about physical roads. These are metaphors. These are pictures for a way of life. In other words, their entire way of life is characterized by desolation, destruction, lack of justice, lack of peace. It's amazing that these verses right here in Isaiah 59 are quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, verses 15 through 17, in a section of Romans when the Apostle Paul indicts that not only the Gentiles are guilty before God, but even the Jews are guilty before God. Even though they had the law, they've not lived according to the law that God demanded and required. And Paul quotes from Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8, when in Romans 3, Paul says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. By quoting these verses, the Apostle Paul shows that the Jewish people were no better off than the Gentiles, even though they had the law. In verses 1 through 8, Isaiah had the courage to expose the real problem that the people of Israel had. It was sin. And Isaiah was confronting their sin, not just in general terms, but in specific terms, from actions to speech to thoughts to a way of life. And one of the key characteristics about the path of sin, dear friends, one of the key characteristics about the path of sin is that it lacks peace and justice. The people who take the path of sin are left without peace and without justice. So whenever you look at your life and you perhaps may see elements of the lack of peace or feel like there's no justice, be assured of this. There's a presence of sin somewhere, somehow. Examine. The second point that Isaiah brings after exposing them the real problem, the the problem of sin, Isaiah goes on, and this chapter presents the brokenness to confess the real problem. 
the brokenness to confess the real problem. We see this in verses 9 through 15. In verse 9, there's an important change that we very easily miss. And you might wonder, what's this important change? It's a change of pronouns. And you may say, only nerdy uh, people would think about considering change of pronouns and how the tone changes. But friends, in this chapter, this is very significant. If you look at verses 9 through 15, all the, all the verbs, all the actions have we or our attached to them. Before verse 9, all the verbs and the actions had either you or there. In other words, in verse 1 through 8, Isaiah exposed the people's sin, their sin, your sin. In verse 9, Isaiah changes the perspective, and he's no longer talking about you and there. He's talking about we and our. This is now a significant change in the book. For the first time, the people of God, not just Isaiah, but the people of God, are beginning to realize this is our problem. This sin issue that we have just heard about, it's not other people's problem. It's ours. So Isaiah is now leading his people to acknowledge that their path of rebellion is their path. And it has left them empty, and it has left them helpless. Look at, let's look at how sin has, has left them empty. In verse 9, God's people recognize and realize, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. At the end of the section, Isaiah again laments the lack of justice and righteousness. Look at verse 14, uh, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. The people come to acknowledge and confess what God has been confronting them with from the very first chapter of the book of Isaiah. God has been confronting His people from chapter 1 that justice is lacking among them, that righteousness is lacking among them. And for the first time in Isaiah, they come to recognize and realize, therefore, justice is indeed far from us. Righteousness is indeed, there's, it's not overtaking us. And worse than that, they come to realize that nothing they do can bring about the justice or the righteousness by their own strength. Friends, one of the first steps in turning towards God is to confess that we lack the very things that God commands us to have. God requires justice of us. God requires righteousness of us. God requires perfection of us. The very first thing we can do to turn towards God is to recognize and acknowledge we don't have the things God requires of us. Sin also leaves us empty because it will not deliver on our hopes. Look at verse 9. We hope for light, but behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. In other words, here, the people may come to realize we're in darkness and we need light. Let's, let's turn. Let's figure out how can we get light? How can we get back on the path of light? And they're saying, okay, we, we are hoping for light. But look, we, we can't produce it. We only get darkness. We only get gloominess. Sin not only leaves us empty of what God requires. Sin also leaves us helpless. In verse 10, Isaiah describes the emptiness that the people feel at this moment. We grope for the wall. Can you just imagine people just groping for the wall? But their eyes is, but 
But like, like the blind, we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. These verses describe the darkness of the people. The darkness is not the darkness outside. It's not the darkness of the night because it's midnight. He actually says, we stumble at noon. It's daytime. And yet we stumble as in the twilight. It is not the darkness of the night outside. It's the darkness of a blind man. In other words, the darkness caused by sin is a darkness that, is, that lies within us, not outside of us. Oh, friends, we as, as Christians might often lament that we live in a dark world, right? We live in a city that, that is dark in all kinds of ways. I know it's beautiful. We live in a very cool city in, all, in, in, in the U.S., but spiritually speaking, it's a dark city. So it's easy for us to think about, oh, we just live in a dark world. And it's easy for us to get frustrated with a darkness outside. Isaiah would, would say, don't be so sure and confident that you know where the darkness is at or in. It's not just a darkness outside. It's actually the darkness inside you. It's a darkness of sin. Sin makes us dark. To, be dark, to have our, our eyes darkened. And it's as if we are blinded. It's as if we are dead. How easy it is for us to accuse other people of acting in a dark way, in a sinful way. But Isaiah says, we grope for the wall like the blind. In verse 10, among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Sin leaves us as helpless as if we are dead people. And sin also leaves us Dissatisfied. In verse 11, Isaiah gives two, uh, uh, two pictures. We, are, we all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. I love how one commentator interpreted these, these two pictures. The growling and moaning in verse 11 are expressions of impatience and pain produced by longing. The people now fall into a state of impatience. Friends, the way of sin leaves us with bitterness and impatience. Friends, bitterness and impatience are always the fruit of sinfulness in our hearts. So ask yourself, do you, do you find yourself oftentimes growling like, well, I'm not sure you think of yourself as a bear, but moaning and moaning like doves, that's a little more personal. We can associate ourselves with that. Verse 11 repeats a theme of lacking justice and righteousness. We hope for justice, but there's none. We hope for salvation, but it is far from us. This means that we cannot supply our own need for justice and righteousness. We want it. We get it. We realize we need justice. We need righteousness. We want it. But we cannot supply it ourselves. We hope for it, but it's lacking. Why? Why is it that we can't have justice? Why is it that we can't have righteousness? The reality is because of sin. Because we cannot restore justice and righteousness back to ourselves by ourselves. We can't, we're not the suppliers of what we need. And friends, part of sin is to make you think that you can do for yourself what you need for yourself. The scripture, the gospel, the news of, of, of God's salvation is that sin leaves us not only empty, it leaves us helpless, it leaves us dissatisfied, 
And there's a fourth part of that, that sin leaves us with. It leaves us under God's condemnation. Notice verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. When we sin, we often think that we are, we often think that we're doing ourselves some good, that we act as we wish. But in reality, sin will testify against us. Before the courtroom of God, sin will not be our ally, but our accuser. So think about that picture. Anytime you're tempted to sin, you may think that sin is, is going to do you some, some good. And you may experience some immediate fruit of that goodness. But in the long run, and in that final day, sin actually will testify against us. Now think about that which you have excused. Think about that for which you have made many excuses in life. Think about that which you have put a lot of hopes in, thinking that you can get your way, you can have a better life, you can enjoy more of, of, your, of your life if you just pursue things your way, sinful, rebellious ways. All those things will testify against us. Sin leaves us under God's condemnation. Why would we, if sin actually testifies against us before God, why would we find, why would we find excuses for our sin? Why would we think of sin as our ally? When we indulge in sin, we indulge in something that will testify against us. Consider that. Next time, temptation will come near the door of your life. One of the signs that people are repenting is they become aware of their sin. Look at verse 12. For our sins are with us, and we know our iniquities. Friends, let me ask you, are you aware of your iniquities? Are you aware of the various ways you are tempted to fall into sin? Take a moment to think about that. Do you know your iniquities? Friends, if you're not aware of how you're tempted to sin or what your sins are, friends, that is not a good sign. That is not a good sign. In verses 12 and 13, we see the confession of sin. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. And he goes on to, to describe it, transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt. Did you hear that? The sin of oppression is not just an act of oppression, but a speaking of oppression and revolt. The list of sins continues, conceiving and uttering from the heart, lying words, mere dishonesty. Whether it's with a family member, whether it's at your job, whether it's with friends or just other people in general. The list of sins that God's people are now confessing is a list of specific things. Friends, I wonder, what would you have to confess before God? Are there any particular sins you would want to confess before Him? Think about that question carefully. A repenting heart is a heart that knows how it sins. One of the reasons why we do what we do in our services is because we want to encourage one another to be bold and courageous and even broken enough to come to the Lord with specific sins. I love how one person said it, true repentance always acknowledges a situation as God sees it without excuse or denial. So Isaiah makes clear that sin is a real problem 
and that the problem is very real. But Isaiah also brings before his people, and we see God's people here adopt this attitude that it is our sin. And we see the brokenness that they have to confess their sin. And it's not just a personal experience about their own sin, but it's also a public experience. In verses 14 and 15, we, they're acknowledging and confessing for the sin that is not only in their lives, but the sin that is in the public squares, in the community. Isaiah recognizes that rebellion has affected so much of his people that anyone who turns away from evil will actually have a hard time. How sad to hear that God's people made it less safe for the righteous than for the rebellious. It was easier to continue in rebellion than actually to turn away from sin and turn to God. And friends, this is a true situation often. It is easier to live as a rebellious person than as a repenting person. The way of repentance, of turning away from evil, will not be acceptable and received well by everyone. For some, it will turn away, for some who turn away from evil, they will encounter pressures and difficulties and ridicule. Be aware, don't assume that everyone out there will be happy that you are turning away from evil to God. Sin leaves us empty, hopeless, dissatisfied, and under God's condemnation. But the story doesn't end here. The third stage, the third step in this story from the real problem to the real solution is the mercy of God to initiate salvation. We see this in the last uh, verses from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. This chapter began with telling us how God responded to the sin of his people. The Lord withdrew his face, withdrew his listening ear, but the Lord did not withdraw his eyes. In verse 15, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. We may think that God does not see our sin, that God is not bothered by our sin, but the opposite is actually the case. God sees it, and he's displeased with it. In Israel's case, it was the lack of justice that God saw, and it displeased him. Friends, if any of us are tempted to stay careless towards injustice, if any of us think that we can remain neutral, or ignore injustice, let this passage awaken us to the reality that God sees all injustice and God is displeased with all injustice. I say, what is justice? In the book of Isaiah, I love how one commentator summarized justice in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, justice means fairness and truth, the right state of affairs that should exist among God's people as they live in obedience to his word and display his character in the way they treat one another. This is God's justice. Let me repeat that, that summary again. I think it's a really sweet way of, of summarizing justice in the book of Isaiah as, as Isaiah describes it. It means fairness and truth, the right state of affairs that should exist among God's people as they live in obedience to his word and display his character in the way they treat one another. Friends, particularly the last part of that, that definition, displaying God's character in the way we treat one another. Are you, are you treating your spouse justly? 
in a way that displays God's character in how you treat him or her? Do you treat other believers justly in the way that displays God's character by the way you treat them? Do you treat your neighbor or co-worker or a stranger in a way that displays not your wishes, not what you're comfortable with, but God's character? Justice is about displaying the character of God in the way we treat one another. We're called to display justice in our relationships because God is just. And God's desire from the very beginning has been to have a people who would reflect His character, not in isolation of one another, but in the way they treat one another, in the way they live in community with one another. Friends, when God sees injustice in how we deal with one another, He is displeased. Do you believe that? If you treat your spouse or your children, or children, if you treat your parents unjustly, God is displeased. Again, verse 16, he saw that there was injustice and he was displeased. But I'm sorry, in verse 16, there's something else he sees. He saw that in verse 15. But in verse 16, he sees something else. He saw that there was no man. He saw something else lacking. Not only justice. He saw that there is no man to intercede. In other words, the Lord saw that no one among his people could fix the problem that they had. None of his people could intervene and stop the mess they were going through. No one. Not one. So what is the Lord's reaction when he looks at the injustice of his people? He's displeased with it. He looks and says, is there someone who can fix the problem among my people? There's no one. So what is God's solution? Verse 16, second half, there's a huge then. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. In verse 17, Isaiah describes the Lord as putting on himself the military clothing. And notice what clothing the Lord puts on himself. He puts on the righteousness as a, he- as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. In verse 18, according to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. This means that when the Lord intervenes to break the injustice, he comes to accomplish two things. On one side, salvation. On the other side, vengeance. Friends, if we can keep these two things together, we will, be on a, we will be safe. Oftentimes people try to keep these separate. Either God's salvation, and don't worry about the vengeance, or just God's vengeance without salvation. When, we, when God intervenes to break the injustice, he, be, he, he come, becomes both. He becomes a warrior who saves on one part, but also brings vengeance on the other. And the promise in verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. This is a means by which God will save his people. He will come himself. His arm will bring the salvation. He will depend on none of the people among his people. And yet he says, a redeemer will come, who will bring salvation. Will all 
benefit from this salvation? Will all be saved? No. It says it only comes to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. The salvation that the, rede the Redeemer brings is a salvation for those who turn from their transgressions. So when Jesus shows up in Galilee and begins his preaching ministry, do you know what was the introduction of his preaching ministry? You know how Jesus began preaching? Here's what he, used to, here's how, what he said as he began. Mark 1, 14 and 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The Redeemer is coming to Zion. The Redeemer is coming to His people. He's bringing salvation. But that salvation is for those who'd actually turn away from their sin and follow Jesus. Friends, the news of God's salvation is given to all. But Jesus comes to be a Redeemer only for those who turn away from their sins and trust in Him. Friends, God's salvation is for all who turn away from their sin and turn to God. This is the call of salvation that Jesus gave. And we extend this salvation today. If you have not repented, if you have not turned away from your rebellious ways, from the sin that you know is inside of you, oh friends, I plead with you today. Turn to the Lord. Turn to you'd like to know more what that means, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. I'd love to talk to you more about what conviction of sin God is producing in your heart and the hope that we can have of relying on Christ and on His sacrifice alone for our redemption. I would love to hear of how God is opening the eyes of those who continue to stay on the path of sin and God opens their eyes to, to recognize their sin, to recognize their brokenness, and to recognize their need for a Savior. And then in verse 21, God gives an amazing promise. An amazing promise. As for me, God says, this is my covenant with them. My spirit that is upon you. And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. Or out of the mouth of your offspring. And out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. Notice what God puts in the hearts of those who turn to him. He puts his word, and he puts his spirit in them. And these will take permanent residence in those whom God saves. Friends, one of the ways we know that someone is saved is when God's word perseveres in one's life. Those who are truly saved persevere to the end. God's spirit and God's word will continue to work and be present in the lives of all true believers. But may I say, not all who make a profession of faith are actually saved. But all who are truly saved will persevere because God promised that His Spirit and His Word will not depart from those who truly turn to the Lord. Friends, it is easy for us when we go through difficult times and difficult uh, relationships either to accuse God or to accuse other people, to, to point, point our finger to God or to circumstances or other people. But in this text, God challenges us, exposes the real problem that we are facing 
when we lack peace, when we lack justice in our relationships, the problem is not other people. The real problem is not circumstances. The real problem is our sin. It is our sin. Our sin is the greatest problem we face in our lives. Not the sin of others, but our own. The solution to our sin is to be broken enough to confess it and to call on God's mercy to rescue us from our sin. We need not only God's forgiveness, dear friends, we need God's rescue from our sin. Do you run to God with your sin? Or do you try to run away from God with your sin? Some people try to run away from God with their sin in the sense of, like, they don't, they don't care. They just don't care. They run away from God with their sin. Other people run away from God with their sin in a different way. They're trying to fix their sin on their own. They're trying to deal with their sin on their own strength. And they still keep away from God. They think, well, I'm, not, I'm just not good enough for, for really to turn this over to God yet. I've got to clean myself up before I come to God. Oh, friends, no, no, no. Run to God with your sin. Run to Him. And He will save. He will rescue. He will break the power of sin. He will cleanse and He will restore. The solution to our sin is to be broken enough to confess it and call on God's mercy to rescue us from that which we cannot rescue ourselves. God's mercy is the is the salvation that he initiates because we could not save ourselves. But praise be to God that he has provided for us an intermediator, Jesus Christ. Through him, all who turn to God are granted salvation from our greatest problem, sin. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray that as you have exposed the real problems of our hearts, as you have challenged us to consider the specificity of the real problems we might face, Father, give us grace to run to you. Give us the brokenness of heart to confess it, to acknowledge it, to recognize our helplessness to fix our own problems. Father, would you give us the ability to see that it is only in Christ and in him alone that we can maybe be right with you that we can have the power of sin broken in our lives. Father, give us the confidence to turn not to ourselves, not to our own strength, not to our own strategies, but to turn to you because you and you alone have the real solution to the real problems that we have. Father, we pray that you would give us this grace and as we depart from this place that we would have this grace accompanying us throughout the week. In the name of Jesus, we pray.